All right, folks, welcome to episode 15 of Internal Budget. If you like the podcast, make sure that you rate the podcast five stars, share the podcast with your friends, download the podcast, and subscribe to the podcast. They're little things, but they go a long way, and I really appreciate it. We as beings are all equal. To accept someone means that you're above them. You must understand that we are all equal. So you're the only one who can accept yourself, and then you have to love yourself. Those are the words of Brock McGillis. Brock is the first openly gay professional hockey player and is one of the leading advocates for the LGBTQ plus community and a general change within hockey culture. Both of us being from Sudbury, Brock and I have run in the same circles for a long time, but given some events that happened this week, which we'll certainly get to during the podcast, I figured it was high time to have him on the show to talk to you fine folks. This is a conversation that at times left me stunned, speechless, and even fighting back tears. It's a very powerful, moving story that Brock shares with us today. And these are the kind of conversations that we need to have if we're going to see the change that Brock and so many other people are fighting so hard for. So without any further ado... Here's episode 15 with Brock McGillis. Okay, Brock McGillis, thank you for doing this. It's good to have another Sudbury boy on the podcast. Yeah, happy to be on. So, um, obviously, Brock, uh, we were talking about this before, but your story is one that's hard to condense, I guess. But um, for those of for those people who aren't who are listening that aren't quite familiar with you, uh, why don't you give a brief rundown of who you are and what it is that you do these days? Yeah, sure. I, I've gone pretty good at uh, cutting it, uh, given the the elevator version. Um, <laughs> So I'm uh, an ex-professional hockey player. I played in the O and played pro in the States and Europe. And um, I'm the first male professional hockey player to come out as gay. I did so in late 2016. And um, from early 2017 on, I started doing some advocacy and public speaking. And now I... um, uh do that full-time i'm a full-time uh public speaker lgbtq plus advocate um um i advocate for shifts in culture and sport and and in society and i'm trying to act as a resource for people who are struggling so i've wanted to have you on for a while actually brock but the thing that kind of inspired me to ask you to do it this week was you kind of got into it on Twitter with Brandon Prust, the former NHL <laughs> player. Um, and I was really impressed by the way you handled yourself because he was kind of uh, throw, throwing these, you know, barbs at you, telling you you're bitter because you sucked as a player and stuff like this. Just, you know, acting like, you know, and he was trying to make his point about how classy hockey players are. And he clearly did a really good job of doing that. But, um, 
but why don't you take me through what happened there um, again for those of for those people who are listening that weren't familiar with it because it didn't start with you right it started with um, a couple women of color I think uh, that are in the sports media landscape but yeah yeah so I saw a retweet of this woman of color who um, had created a meme or retweeted a meme or something and then. Jed Apatow retweeted it and Brandon Press saw it and then started attacking her, calling her names online. And um, then when she blocked him on Twitter, he searched her out on other platforms, like nice social media platforms, and went after her there. And she posted this on Twitter. And to me, it's like, Okay, you you can have an opinion towards something, but when you're like harassing somebody, um, I think especially as minorities, we have to do a good job of um, standing up for one another, and and you know showing some solidarity, especially in a situation where this person didn't do anything wrong. Yeah. Um, you know, and and do I agree with exactly, you know, like, uh, do I understand his point that it's a, an overgeneralization to say white people in terms of when you're talking about, you know, specific issues? Yeah, it's a generalization. There's no doubt. Do I also know that there's uh, subtle racism and different um, tiers of it in society and that all people are somewhat racist in different tiers? Yes, and people can argue that. I've studied it. I'm certified in diversity and inclusion from Cornell University, so um, don't try me on that. <laughs> uh, and so I just posted a tweet and I said, this is why hockey has, you know, is known to be uh, from a cultural perspective, uh, the worst in terms of racism, sexism, and homophobia. It's culturally known as the worst. And then uh, Brandon Press' response was, I tagged him in it. I didn't care if you saw it. I, I, I you know, I, I think if I'm going to say something, I'll say it straight up. Uh, typically, I prefer DMing people, but I think I'm at a point now where People pretend that these issues don't exist because of things like Hockey's for Everyone Month or things like You Can Play having a Pride Night at hockey games. And it's like it, it box ticks for the sport. And it's like, see, we're fine. Look, look, we do this. We have that night. And, and no. So without being rude, without... You know, um, I, I don't condemn hockey. I don't hate hockey. I, I actually love hockey. I'm, I'm a hockey junkie. I'm a sports junkie. Uh, Brandon, you can ask your father or your brother. They've <laughs> yeah. been around me for a very long time. I will go out and help any team any day whenever anyone asks me. And I'm happy to do it. I love the sport. Yeah. But, but I also have a platform and, and I'm able to draw awareness to things that need to shift to improve the sport from a social perspective. So I tagged him in the tweet. And then his response was, you suck at hockey, therefore you're angry. So you didn't make it anywhere. And I said, oh, that's interesting. Because, you know, I was um, sorry I didn't make the NHL. I was too busy trying not to kill myself. Yeah. Um, and I'm pretty proud of the fact that um, 
you know, as somebody struggling with their sexuality and depression and anxiety and drinking daily and, and, you know, uh, struggling to stay alive, that I was able to not only play in, in the OHL, like Brandon Prest, I played professionally and uh, had a career and made money in the game, which is less than, you know, a percent of people do. So considering everything, I'm pretty proud of my career. Um, and if that's your only comeback to me, then it tells me that you just, you're deflecting and you don't really want to look at what you're doing. So I, I tried to keep it, you know, uh, instead of going, and, and I know a lot of stuff, uh, the hockey world's a very small place and people were sending me things. <laughs> I didn't use any of it because there's no point. That's not going to make things better. No, it's going to create more divisiveness. So I'm going to stick to facts. I'm going to stick to studies. I'm going to stick to personal experiences, experiences of people who have come to me. And and I'm going to share the reality of the culture of the sport. And it needs to change. And I don't blame the players. And I don't blame Brandon Prust. It, it's a product of the environment. You can't be in the same environment your whole life and, you know, not become a product of it. And unless you're different or you leave it. And I was different. And a guy like, you know, a Dan Carcillo left it. So that's why. And it, and it took him, you know, um, going to rehab and being exposed to different things to recognize. So that's why I don't blame these guys. Um, but if we don't continuously point it out, it'll never shift. So you've played all over the place. Like you mentioned, playing, you know, professionally and making money in the game. You played in the OHL, you played in Europe, and then you came back and played in the Canadian University Circuit, correct? Yeah, and I played in Kalamazoo. Well. Okay, right. Yeah. Um, where was it that you realized that there was a problem ingrained within the culture of the sport? Like, was there, was there like an aha moment where you realized, oh, this is, you know, this is a toxic environment? Or was it, you know, something that kind of gradually built up over time? Honestly, it wasn't until after I retired that I recognized that um, because I was immersed in it. Right. Um, my whole identity was based off being a hockey player. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I'd go to even when I was home, it would people would talk to me about hockey. My, I became known as in my mind as Brock McGillis hockey player. So I was doing, <clears throat> excuse me, I was doing everything in my power from uh the time i recognized that i was gay and struggling and fighting and suppressing it to um to suppress it so that it wouldn't come out because i i feared what would happen and um in hindsight i know now that that's you know a problem in the culture it's not a brock problem it's a hockey problem that people are forced to feel that way um but ultimately, it wasn't until later on when I retired and I was working with athletes and, and I started doing this work and more people came to me that's like, wait, I'm not bad or wrong. Because that's how I felt daily based off the language used in locker rooms and the attitudes and the macho mentality that, you know, was so prevalent that I can't be gay. Yeah. So there's, it's impossible. If I'm gay, then I... I can't play the sport. I, I, you can't be both because typically in men's hockey, um, men put each other down within the sport, either by feminizing one another or using homophobic language. Right. It's almost the same. You're less than a man. 
So it's like, well, they're not going to want me on their team. They're not going to let me in the door. And then I, I left the sport. Um, I retired and I started working with athletes in Sudbury. And um, it wasn't until people started outing me, like competitors in uh, training, off-ice training, started outing me as a means Jeez. to... Um, oh, yeah. The, the main people in Sudbury were outing me to potential clients. I had no idea about that. That's... Yeah. Oh, and no. then, and then after that, um, uh, one of the hockey associations, uh, banned me from training their teams. Jesus Christ. I grew up playing in the association. My brother played in it. My father, my brother and I all coached in it. And I was the only one who trained players that also coached. And yet I was the only one not allowed to train teams. So, um, my father asked the president, he said, is it because Brock's gay? And he goes, what? I had no idea. He knew. Yeah, I yeah. knew he knew. Uh, people were outing me. I, at that point, a couple of parents had told me they'd known. And um, kids I worked with and whatnot. And um, he, uh, the next day, I showed up uh, to a rink. And I was going on the ice with the t- team. Um was your brother on the minor midget team? Yeah, he was. Yeah. Okay, so I showed up to the rink, and the coach said, um, I no longer need your services. The day <laughs> after, my dad asked the president. Uh, the president went and called coaches and um, told them I was gay. That's And so that that coach some other people said no we no longer need your services we no longer want you around i had a there was a replacement already at the rink when i got there and i was doing that stuff free of charge helping out and um i got pushed right out the door and uh blackballed in my own community and that was kind of the shift where i recognized how bad it was i knew the language was bad but i you know uh, the bias that i feared my entire life came to fruition in my backyard yeah i, I apologize for sounding like i'm i, I was cutting in there but i, I i'm speechless no. I, i'm absolutely stunned uh that's incredibly disappointing i had no idea that that took place um and i'm i'm really sorry you had to go through that uh well, thanks you know but honestly i'm not i'm i'm not because um it made me stronger it's empowered me. It's part of the reason why I came out publicly. Uh, there was that and a couple other incidents that happened. Um, between that and that summer, there was the incident at Pulse Nightclub in Orlando. And yeah. a few other smaller things made me realize enough's enough. Nobody can hold this over me any longer. And so, and so it's why I wrote the article to come out, because it was enough is enough. And I'm not going to accept this and nobody's going to use this against me anymore. It's not going to be spoken about behind my back because everyone's going to know. Brock, I spent most of my teenage years and, you know, the first couple of years in university um, in football locker rooms. uh, Mm -hmm. You know, I played through the Sudbury circuit and I ended up coming here to U of T to play. And you were talking about how that language gets thrown around in locker rooms, um, those homophobic slurs and things like that. And I've seen that everywhere I've been. 
Um, and you know, it's not, at least to my understanding and in my experience, you know, football is, I played football and I played hockey and football is a very different kind of locker room environment. Um, the word that comes to mind to me is brotherhood, right? Like it's, it's a very, I found it to be a very, a much closer bond. Um, so, and maybe I'm wrong in this assessment, but I can't help but feel like football is a more accepting environment. Um, I think, you know, there's more racial diversity in football. So that kind of does away with the racism component. Um, as far as, you know, as far as the, the homosexuality thing goes, you know, those words got thrown around, but I always felt like if any one of our teammates had come out, you know, wherever I played, then we would have accepted them. And again, maybe that's just me being naive, but it seems like hockey has a much longer way to go in terms of acceptance of, you know, and doing away with racism and homophobia and things like that. Why do you think that is? Why does the sport lag so far behind? Why is this stuff that happened to you in Sudbury still going on today where maybe some of the racism components aren't going on as much? Well, here's the thing I I think with uh, the, in terms of, you know, inclusion or support towards a teammate coming out, I, I think hockey players for the most part like i worked when i was in summary with what, like 100 kids daily and they all knew i was gay and chose to work with me and, and i'll actually share a story about that so i think hockey people would be open to it um so before i'd come out publicly when all this stuff was going on uh with the um you know, association and, and with the um, uh, coaches kicked me off staffs and whatnot. A hockey mom called me one day and said, Brock, I want to set you up on a date. And I said, what? I said, um, like, what's her name? Because I just assumed that she thought I was straight. Right. And she said, Steve. <laughs> And I froze, I panicked, and I said, what? And she said, Brock, you're gay. I'm like, how do you know this? And she goes, my son told me, and her son was 15 at the time. I said, how does, she, or how does he know this? And she said, oh, they all know, all the boys know. And at the time, I was working predominantly with male players. Yeah. And, and I was like, all these hockey boys in northern Ontario, these cocky hockey boys who think they're like a gift to the world, walk around like you know you, you see them in high school oh or yeah at parties or in bars and walk around like they own the place yep knowing gay and choose to work with me it's pretty cool yeah and at that point i thought you know what maybe maybe i should come out to them maybe i should tell them all i'm gay and just let it out and you know but instead and this is when i started to around the time when i I start to recognize the culture and I I was having, you know, these deeper thoughts and, and becoming more analytical in my views of sport culture and society and different things because I was evolving and I started to, to do a little sociology experiment where I observed their behaviors and I started to notice, or I, I would observe their when they use racist sexist homophobic language mm-hmm. start to notice anytime they'd say something homophobic they would freeze up and apologize to me 
And I thought, well, this is really cool. Like maybe I'm creating a shift, you know, like they know me and, and they apologize. And, and then I thought, or, and I didn't say anything. Like I would just smile and nod and just go on with whatever we were doing. And I didn't say anything until like, then one day I wasn't there because I started thinking, well, maybe they're just nice to me, but they go to school or on the ice in the locker room, they call kids names, call their peers names, call other people names. I didn't know. And then one day I wasn't there. And one of the younger players, um, they were working with a sprint coach and one of the younger players looked at him, the sprint coach said something like that they had 10 more 200 meter sprints or something. And this young guy looks at him and goes, this is so gay. I can't believe you're making us do this. And one of the older players already in the OHL ingrained in the culture looked at him and said, we don't say that here. Give me 50 push-ups. Wow. And, and the younger player said, you know what, you're right, and did the push-ups. And then because they have, and, and this kind of ties in with football, especially in, in probably Canadian culture more so than American culture. Uh, I think hockey, because a lot of the football players here also played hockey. Mm -hmm. right um hockey culture kind of reigns supreme and has influence yeah so then these hockey players went to school and if they were using that homophobic language other people would probably start to use it or younger kids and since most people played the sport they would start using it too uh, especially if like top players or you know the influential hockey players were using it um, but they went to their peers and whatnot and, and started shifting it and, and adopted that 50 push-up deal amongst my athletes and then took it to their peers on their teams and, um, at school. In fact, the one kid I'd never met, young hockey player was, um, on FaceTime one night with a young woman, 15 years old. And she said, let's hang out tonight. And he goes, no, I can't. I have practice. And she's like, oh, that's so gay. You never want to hang out with me. And he looked at her and said, give me 50 push-ups right now. <laughs> and she did them on FaceTime. I love that. Well, yeah. And, and it started to tell me that shifts could happen. Yeah. But here's the thing that I've come to realize from all of this. And it was, it was uh, a text message I received from a player um, that your brother played with. And this player moved to play junior in Toronto, and he said, I never believed you when you talked about homophobia in hockey and how far we had to go because I stopped experiencing it. Nobody on my teams used it anymore. Nobody older or younger were using it the same way. And he's like, but then I got here. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, fag, homo, queer were thrown around without any care. You yeah. know, with the, my first day alone, I heard it 50 times. And and he's coming to Toronto. Like, that's, you know, it's a more inclusive place. It has more exposure to diversity than Sudbury. For sure. And he's like, I was shocked. He goes, you've revolutionized the way people act and think in Sudbury. So... Wow. That got me thinking, though, and, and what I recognized was, so you talked about football. Mm -hmm. You played football in high school. Did you play for your high school? I did, yeah, yeah. So when you play for your high school in football, you're there after school. You're practicing around there. You're in the weight room there. Mm -hmm. But 
there might be volleyball players there. There may be basketball players there. There's women's teams there. There's academics still in the school. There's clubs still in the school. You're, you're exposed to more diversity. Yeah. And, and whether it's diversity in race or gender or just interests, you're exposed to more. Whereas mm-hmm. with hockey, you're segregated in an arena off from everyone else besides hockey players who typically are all predominantly Caucasian, predominantly from the same socioeconomic background. Mm-hmm. And you're locked away just with your own age. That's the other thing in high school. You're with, you know, you can be in grade nine and you're in school after school and there's grade 12s there. So, you know, yeah. so, so you're around different people, different ages, whatnot with hockey, you're in a locker room six nights a week with, you know, 18 to 20 of your peers, your age, and you have your coach. Yeah. And that's it. And then you travel every weekend on a bus with those same people. So all your time is spent segregated. You're not exposed to anybody, anything whatsoever, except for the influence of coach and, and the reality of coaches. And there's some great coaches out there. My mm-hmm. dad coached. I've been around your dad's great guy coached. Um, but there's a lot of people who, um, you know, use language that they grew up using playing and and continue to perpetuate the same culture and they're the influencers for these kids and these kids grow up and the other people who influence them are older players who may have a similar type coach and and there's a trickle down effect and it's a cycle that continually perpetuates itself and then when they stop playing when they get older because they especially if they played high enough levels they haven't been exposed to anything besides hockey so what do they do they get back into hockey yeah so, so it leads to that. And so my, my point with this is a long-winded way of saying... That's all good, man. ...to be inclusive and supportive, and, and I, I'm not a fan of the word, but accepting of a gay teammate. But they just haven't been exposed to anything. They don't know how. Yeah. Because all they know is hockey culture. And it's like, you go into a hockey locker room, there's three things you're allowed to talk about. Sports mostly hockey but sports mm-hmm. girls and partying yeah yeah Anything absolutely else off the limits there's it's really interesting what you said about you know slurs and the language that gets thrown around in these places and even in the football locker rooms i've been in you know and i i've been guilty of it as well you know like throwing so words like yeah like pussy and you know faggot and words like that whatever around and it's what what always struck me was that we all knew that it wasn't okay to say that but there was this kind of justification that we didn't mean anything you know homophobic or sexist by it right like it was just you know it was like it was like the word was standing in for you know loser or whatever so yeah. what do you say to people that use that as justification for saying those things that is um not being willing to look at yourself in the mirror and recognize that you're not perfect. Yeah. And and if you're not willing to evolve and adapt, then you're a problem. You know what I mean? Because that's yeah. what that is. That's that's a, a that's a justification for poor behavior. Mm-hmm. And 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 I don't blame anyone who's used language. We all slip up. It's inevitable. I've 
Everywhere I go, the first question I ask who here is use homophobic language anywhere I speak. Yeah. Everywhere I've gone, there's at least 90% of the hands up. Mm-hmm. So it, it's, it's very normalized in our culture. So, uh, you know, but to say, well, that's not what I mean. Well, that's fine, except you don't know who, like, first and foremost, it's, it's a bullshit excuse. Absolutely. Um, but secondly, and what I try and do is humanize it. Because a lot of the people, especially if they came from, you know, sport culture, it's like, it's like, here, here's the thing with sport culture. And, and this is why maybe racism in football is less prevalent. Um, you know, when, when we're all the same, in a sense, or presumed to be the same, we can get away with same thing, saying things we wouldn't say in, you know, mixed race settings, mixed gender settings, mixed sexuality settings. So, so in terms of there's more people of color in football than hockey, therefore there's less overt racism, you know, in terms of the language in football because there's people of color around, so we don't want to say something to offend them. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas with you know the homophobic language, everyone assumes that everyone in male team sports is straight, so they're not going to use that, or they're going to use that language because they feel like, oh, it's a safe place. I can, yeah, use it. Meanwhile, we don't know who identifies what, and this is what I get to is you know I humanize this. Uh, first thing I do anywhere I go is share my story and how like language made me try to kill myself on more than one occasion language is the reason i wasn't bullied i was a hockey player playing in the ohl playing professionally like i was you know revered in northern ontario you know uh, mm-hmm. but language made me like i'd go home at night in my billet's house when i was in the ohl and try and kill myself and when i wasn't trying to kill myself i was drinking myself silly to numb it because I was crying and depressed and hating myself just from language I heard, not even things directed at me. I wasn't bullied. Mm-hmm. And, and so when you get that across and you go, wait, then you throw a few little stats out. Like it used to be 10% of the population, you know, what identifies part of the LGBTQ plus now it's even higher. Yeah. You know, like now they're seeing studies are over 20%. Like, and and I, I think it was uh, a friend of mine just finished med school and they learned in med school that like 40 or 50% of millennials experiment with the same sex. Wow. You know what I mean? So they yeah. might not identify as that, but they're still doing that. So they're going to feel uncomfortable with this language. Mm-hmm. And, and so you don't know who identifies as what. I was a cocky, hockey womanizer. Like I was a flat out womanizer. <laughs> no, I was. No, I believe you. I just... You know, and I'm very honest about that. I'm, I'm I'm ashamed to admit it, and I'm not proud of that fact. But it's reality, and and I share this because it needs to be known and it needs to be heard. And 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 yet now I'm the gay guy standing before all these people when I share this story, and it's like you don't know who identifies as what. Yeah. So you could be, you know, if I go into a locker room, I'll tell them, or or at school, like. You could be saying this thing and and not know, but your best friend may be struggling. Your sibling may be struggling and you're hurting them every time you use this language. And on top of that, 
everywhere I go, there's very few people today that don't know somebody who identifies as part of that community. Mm-hmm. Whether it's a relative or a sibling or, you know, a family friend or just a celebrity they like who happens to be a part of that community. Everyone knows somebody. Um, you might be saying it, uh, language, direct language, like bullying language and indirect language, like those off-the-cuff remarks that are very common, like, oh, that's so gay. Mm-hmm. Those two spread. And you might not say it to somebody who identifies in the community or to that family member or somebody you know, but eventually it will be said in their presence and you're hurting them because you're continuing to perpetuate and spread this language. And, and when you get people to realize that and you kind of humanize it for them, that, you know, it could be your best friend. Yeah. No idea what anyone's going through. Or, or furthermore, if I'm in a locker room with the team, I go, it could be your teammate. And you might be homophobic. And that's fine. They could be. That's your choice. But ultimately, you say you want to win. Well, I'm telling you right now, if you're using that language and, and somebody in that room is struggling, you're hurting them. And if they're hurting, they're not going to play to their capability. Yeah. And that's going to hurt your team. That's going to that hurt, hurt your chances to win. That hurt your performance when that oh, stuff guaranteed. was thrown around? Hockey only got 60 to 70% of my potential out of me. How could it not? I mean, I was, I was sitting there. I was drinking every night. I was depressed. I had a season-ending injury every year from 15 until I retired in my late 20s. Wow. Every single year season ending i was on nhl draft list and and then missed half of the season with injuries you know like i was it just i like it's incredibly rare to get mono twice i think i had it three times holy hell i, I most of my injuries and everything i went through i believe were psychosomatic based off of everything i was going through and it wasn't even targeted right it was just stuff that was it was that indirect language and or directed at other people that I heard so commonly. I thought it, I was bad or wrong, and I couldn't be me. There was something wrong with me, and I resented myself to the point that I got, you know, sick. I was depressed, suicidal, constantly injured, constantly sick. Like, uh, and and how can you play your top ability like that? Yeah. That's... There's no way. And and I still managed to make it. And that's where I say, like, you know, hey, Brandon, you pressed, you can call out my career all you want. But guess what? The fact that I went through all that and still made it to where I made it, I'm pretty damn proud. <laughs> yeah, know? absolutely. It's like, like it's, uh, it's a marvel that I'm alive, let alone having made money to play the sport. So, um, you know, it definitely hampered my career, and it's why we don't see more gay men make it in male team sports, and why we haven't seen anyone, you know, make it to the top level in hockey. Yeah. Out openly. When you came out, how did you see it going? Was this just, did you see it just being you writing this letter? saying you were gay and being done with it? Or did you plan on taking it the activism route? Like, was this something that was, you know, 
an idea of yours or did it just kind of happen organically? And then a couple of years later, you find yourself in this position of influence. It's really bizarre because I was friends with uh, Brendan Burke. Right. And Brendan's the son of Brian Burke, who mm -hmm. came out as gay and then passed away in a car accident. And Brendan is the reason I came out. To, I, I'd been out to my family for years prior to coming out publicly um, and to my friends outside of hockey. Um, I didn't come out in to any of my hockey friends because I was still working in the game. And I feared in Northern Ontario that, well, what did happen, I feared would happen. I'd be, you know, um, push out the door and people wouldn't want their kids training with me because I was gay and they weren't exposed to that community at all. Um, but right before Brendan passed away, he had, uh, two days before we were talking and he sent me a text that said, I can't wait for the day that you're out to your family. Like I am to mine. And I didn't answer him. And, and it was just out of fear, not that my family wouldn't be inclusive and supportive. I knew they would be. Um, it was more that they would stand up and become more sensitive to the language used in the locker room and stand up to it. You know, my dad yeah. scouted in the OHL for a long time, coached AAA and junior. My brother was a first-round pick in the OHL, played professionally. And I feared that they would uh, stand up to the language and accidentally out me in the process, which actually did happen with my dad and that was standing up to that, you know, president of an association. Um, but in terms of when I came out publicly, the incident in hockey happened and I, everything I had ever felt, the struggle, the oppression, the, the, the fear just hit me so hard. It was, I can barely get out of bed. And then, um, the incident that summer at Pulse nightclub where 49 people were murdered just for being gay. And, you know, the reality is for my community, those gay bars are safe spaces where people can go be themselves because even in inclusive countries like Canada, um, you know, like two men walk down the street holding hands in Toronto, they, they still run the threat of being called names or, yeah. up or, you know, different things happening to them. So when that, when that, those bars were taken away and, and that, like we everywhere felt on edge like that easily could have been me and my friends in Toronto mm -hmm. as easily as it was those people in Orlando. Cause this wasn't somewhere across the world where it's illegal to be gay. It was, you know, in our backyard, it's our neighbor. Um, and then a friend of mine was running uh, Toronto pride at the time. He was, and he was very visible in the media that year. And we were supposed to go to a charity event less than a week after. So Pulse happened on a Saturday, the next Wednesday. He gives me a call. And I don't know if I've ever told this story publicly because it's his to tell, but I'm going to share it with you. Sure. Um, I just won't mention names or anything. Yep, no worries at all. He, he gives me a call and goes, um, we're supposed to go Friday night to a charity event. And he goes, I don't think you should come. I said, why not? He goes, Brock, I just got a call from the RCMP and I'm on an ISIS hit list. Oh my God. I said, shut up. I, I thought he was joking. I said, this isn't funny. Like, Pulse just happened. At the time, ISIS was taking credit for it. Yeah. 
I'm like, no, you're you're not. Shut up. I'm like, stop it. And he goes, I'm not kidding. That's and so I said, well, are you going to the event? And he goes, yeah, I have to. I have no choice. I said, I'm coming with you. So I left Friday after work in Sudbury training the kids. Drove to Toronto to go to this event. Didn't tell anyone in my life uh, about the incident, what was potentially happening. Uh, we met up at his condo. I remember we were outside his place and we were about to get into an Uber and we chugged a drink. <laughs> and we looked at each other like we're going to die tonight. At a charity event. <sighs> we got there and they had the wands out there patting, frisking and patting down everybody at a charity event. They had the wands out, the metal detector wands, checking everybody. We had undercover officers around us the whole night. Nothing happened to him. Nothing has happened to him. He has safe, healthy, happy life. But that was the moment. The next day I woke up and I said, okay, enough's enough. Nobody's using this against me again. And I'm... I don't know if I have a platform. I think I have somewhat of one because of hockey, but I'm going to do my part. So I wrote an article. I thought maybe, you know, a few people would see it and, and maybe I'll help a couple of kids. At the very least, I'm going to empower myself. Um, that first day alone, I received over 10,000 messages. And I talked to Brendan in the past about activism and doing some stuff in hockey. And But like even back then after he passed away, like, HBO called me. I want to do a documentary on me. Wow. I said no. But I like back then I was like, who am I? Like I'm this closeted gay guy who, you know, has never lived as a gay man. Who am I to, you know, speak on behalf of a community? So I never really thought of it. And at this point, I was like, well, I'm done playing. Nobody's going to care. Like I'll, I'll write this article. A few people might care. And then it sort of blew up. Like first day, ten thousand messages, and then calls to speak and before I know it I'm traveling the world speaking I have a TV series in the US and you know uh, on the cusp of starting a new project with a prominent uh, Canadian sports uh, broadcasting and um, network and a few different projects in the works and things have just sort of you know I'm traveling the world speaking and it's my life's changed that's I can't get over that story about the charity event um you know the word brave gets thrown around a ton but that's just I I hope you don't mind me saying that's a pretty courageous thing you did and the way you handled that um wow that's you've, you've left me speechless this is the first time this has happened to me uh but you know what I had been through so much and yeah. at that point, it, 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 I don't see it as bravery at all. I just thought, like, I had, I had, like this isn't going to be any worse. Yeah, it can't get any worse. Did it was like a fuck it moment. Yeah, when was that? Be kind of when it became okay. This isn't about Brock McGillis's struggle anymore. This is about you know my community struggle. Was that when that? kind of light that light switch flipped in your head i think it started to um but then everything when i came out became about me right right and every um everything i was 
asked to do was like every interview I gave was my story. And it was like a year and a half of totally just sharing my story. Um, but then I started, uh, I started when I started speaking, I started high schools would call me elementary schools. And then I'd have kids reach out through social media afterwards and they would share their struggles. And I'd have kids who quit hockey share their struggles and I would have adults start coming to me and sharing their struggles. And that's when it really hit home within the community. Um, you know, it, that first one, I thought, you know, what, well, you know, well, this might be because pulse just happened now this, and it's like one of those copycat situations. Um, but it was the more people came to me from all over the world. I had one person from a country um, where it's illegal to be gay and his best friend started the first LGBT newsletter in that country. Yeah. That's... His friend who started the newsletter was found by the government and decapitated. Oh God. And he's coming to me for support. Wow. And, and these things happen. Like I have people who are, you know, cutting themselves and, and, like on the brink of death and they're coming to me. And, and that's when I start to realize like this is way bigger than me sharing a hockey story. This, you know, this supersedes that like as much as I love hockey, I, I, I want hockey to be inclusive because I think hockey has an opportunity in this country. Um, the reality is less than one people are going to make money at the game. Um, hockey could be empowering for so many. Yeah, sport can be empowering. A trans boy come to me recently, and he was cutting himself daily, Ugh. and he's 16 years old. And then he found bodybuilding, and he stopped cutting himself. He started weightlifting and bodybuilding, and 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 it gave him purpose. It gave him a, a release, an outlet. It empowered him, <laughs> and. That's why I advocate for hockey because the big picture I couldn't give. I, I love hockey, but I couldn't give two shits about it because it, it's difficult for me to feel sorry for guys upset like Brandon Press when I see real struggle in people who are, you know, going to die if things don't change, you know, mm -hmm. um, in mainstream society. But I see hockey as being that social outlet to shift things and, and, and a place where they can feel good. I felt great. The best I ever felt was when I was on the ice. Yeah. Nothing else mattered. Yeah, I know the feeling. You know, and, and that's what sport has the ability to do. So that's why I want hockey to evolve because hockey plays such a fundamental role in Canadian culture that if it evolves it'll be a safe haven potentially for marginalized people who, you know, maybe they're playing house league. Who gives a shit? Yeah. They're, maybe they'll never make the NHL. Who gives a shit? Maybe they'll be happy. Yeah. And, and that's what sports is supposed to be about. It's supposed to be joy of the game. It's a kid's game. Everyone says that. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and so, well, well, let's open it up to people so that they can all experience joy. Yeah. Knowing what you know now and having the platform that you have, mm -hmm. do you regret not coming out sooner or do you think you needed those experiences and that the time that you came out was the right time to do it? 
Well, I think two things. I think for my hockey career, I regret not coming out at 15. Wow. Um, I think, like, I remember uh, the first time I asked my parents, what if I'm gay? I was six years old. So, like, this is something I always knew, you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, had I come out in my, you know, in through during, like, my, like, during puberty in my, you know, adolescence and teen years, I would have had, I, I'm very fortunate and privileged to come from, you know, uh, a family that has resources and means mm-hmm. and to support me and could have and would have supported me so i i would have had you know therapists if i needed i would have had the resources at my disposal to figure out who i was and i i would have had a team around me of support so emotionally mentally so that i wouldn't have had to numb and struggle the way i did alone internally um numb with alcohol uh, yeah. try try to be this person i'm not and this hyper masculine macho bro womanizer guy and and fake it and lie and pretend and cry and be depressed and suicidal and try and take my life and have all the injuries um so in hindsight for my hockey career had i come out at 14 15 years old they would have gotten me the help i needed so i wasn't depressed so i could have worked through that um so that I, I would have understood what it was like to be gay and, and probably had people around me that they could have, you know, some mentors. Um, so that I could have went to the right teams in the right places that may have been inclusive. And, and you know, had a support system when I didn't move away from home and have my parents know what I was going through so that they could talk to me about it. Um, so in hindsight, from that perspective, yeah. Absolutely. For what I do now, the best thing that could have happened is what happened. Right. Because the majority of the cases probably, you know, either aren't coming out earlier or may not have the resources that I would have had at my disposal. So having experienced all that struggle, now I am the resource. Yeah. So um, for what I do now... Um, it's made me passionate and, and willing to stand up in use my voice. And, and it wasn't just the oppression because a lot of people experience oppression, but what I did do after I, I experienced it was, you know, prior to coming in, prior to being the voice that I've kind of become, I went to therapy and I worked through all my shit. Mm-hmm. And I continue to work through all my shit so that I don't come across as this angry person who hates hockey is what I was, you know, press tried to portray me as or, you know, as other activists are labeled um, and some rightfully and some wrongfully. But I, I took the time to work through all my stuff before I started to vocalize how I saw things and, you know, the things that I saw that I thought needed to shift. Um, so I think I needed that and I also needed to work through it. Your activism work, um, 
and the push for change within hockey culture, it's kind of hit a new level, I think, over the last year or so with everything that happened with Akeem Alou and um, the kind of shift. The, I don't know if I don't want to say shift, but what we saw take place through the early part of the NHL season this year. Do you feel that? Do you feel like things are kind of moving in a new direction? Like we've, I don't know, maybe turned a corner. Like, does it feel different because of the last year or so now? Um, I think there's a few more voices. And I think, I think there's, there are voices of people that are not directly in the bubble. Uh, right. We we haven't seen current management, current players, or the league itself kind of step up and say the culture needs a revamp. Mm-hmm. Um, so until that happens, I think a lot of it is smoke and mirrors. That said... Um, there there has been a shift in terms of you know when i first started speaking out on this a lot of the times i was alone yeah but now we're seeing um you know whether it's new people in media like you you know who are on the newer on end of things excuse me or media members who have been there for a long time who have always said that things needed to shift and they might have, you know, had some views, but, and were probably revolutionary for their time, but now they're becoming pinpointing exactly instead of broad statements. Um, so media's pushing for it more. There's people like Dan Carcillo and Akeem and, and, you know, uh, like a few years ago, we saw JT Miller yeah. with his, fist up after the Kaepernick stuff and really mm-hmm. I think the biggest shift probably came from Cap Kaepernick um, and what he did made people realize you know that oh it's okay to have a voice and we shouldn't and it probably made people think oh maybe we shouldn't stand and allow this mistreatment of ourselves or each other um, so Am I optimistic? Not until um, people in you know that bubble. When when I see a player like like the players who spoke out against uh, Bill Peters or Babcock or anything, they were all guys that played for them and now aren't in the NHL. Mm-hmm. Everyone's afraid for their paycheck, and rightfully so. Yeah. Look what hockey did to me. You know, it pushed me out the door in my hometown even. And I feared from a young age because we're told what's said in the room stays in the room. That's a very hockey thing. It is. From the age of six or seven, eight years old. So then we have this mentality that, you know, we can't say anything. And and you have these coaches and, and these people within the culture that if you do speak out, they... They hold so much power. They yeah. decide hockey, it, it, because in this sport, they decide your ice time. They decide um, when when you're in like a draft year, 
scouts go ask the coach about the player about how they are as a person and, and, you know, whatnot. And you got these reports beyond just their, you know, on their characteristics, but nobody is fact checking the characteristics of that coach before deciding it or what kind of bias they have towards that individual based off, you know, race or sexuality or anything else, just, you know, economics, whatever it is, there's, there's always biases. And so they hold so much power and everyone's afraid that if they speak out and the NHL this year was a prime example of that. And it trickles all the way down to novice hockey. If we speak out, we're going to be alienated. We're going, our kid is, or I as an individual, I'm going to suffer. Mm -hmm. That's how much power the coach, you know, yields. If, if Gary Bettman called a press conference tomorrow um, with the goal of beginning this shift, truly beginning this shift that you want to see to fix the problems within hockey culture, um, and I know it's not just him because it's a change that would happen, have to happen from you know the bottom house league all the way up to the NHL. It's a top-down, bottom-up, and it has to happen simultaneously. Yeah, so... For you to believe that, okay, this thing is finally moving in the right direction, this change has truly begun, what would he need to say to you? That they're going to, and I've told them, I I talked to the NHL, I've done some work with them, hoping to uh, open doors to, you know, good faith to actually create shifts. Mm -hmm. And and I've worked through the OHL and, 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 through most of their teams and um i'm very transparent in what i think needs to happen the reality is and it goes back to what i said about when you played football versus hockey first and foremost they need to humanize these issues for these players because ultimately i believe most people are good by nature yeah people aren't inherently bad people for the most part They might do bad things, they might do shitty things, but they're not necessarily, they don't do it with malice or with intent to be malicious. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely, yeah. So so for me, I look at this and go, okay, so if, if Gary wants to switch things, if the NHL wants to switch things, first things first, they would create a team of minority people in the sport. And, and go around and have town halls to speak to each club. And not to the front offices, because I know they do things, and I've explained this to them, they, they do things with the corporate side of it. That's just corporate culture. Yeah. You have no choice but to do that. Those people aren't hockey people. They, they, they're accountants and lawyers, and they don't come from this culture. Mm-hmm. Um, but have a group of minorities who go around and speak to the players and coaches and, and like hockey operations groups for each team to humanize these issues. Kind of like what I was doing in the OHL. And then what they have to do with that is from there, they have to, um, you you know, uh, hockey is, is, um, 
what's the word I'm looking for. It's um, you can always tell a hockey player. It's it's conformist in nature. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I can go to any any mall in Canada and I'll tell you which kids play hockey. Yeah. They absolutely. dress the same, talk the same, walk the same. And like I said before, no, it's true though. They no, do. it is. Yeah. That's why I'm laughing. Cause it's true. Yeah. And, and you know, I go into schools and I'll ask questions afterwards and I'll specifically ask a question to a kid that I know is a hockey player. Yeah. Cause I know which ones are the hockey players. Um, but the other thing is, and because it's so conformist, I, I think you have to break that conformity. So another thing I do after I humanize the issue is I want to break that down because it's one thing to do that, but then everyone's afraid to be, to speak out or do something different. And, and people might say that's not true or they might be in disbelief, but uh, a prime example is Dougie Hamilton. Dougie Hamilton is a six foot five, right-hand shot defenseman who can skate Mm. they're they're you know they don't grow on trees they're very difficult to find dougie hamilton's been traded and he's you know like he's been traded twice because he doesn't fit into teams they say yeah it's a hard time fitting in the locker room is what i've always heard and the reason for that is Instead of going out partying on the road or having beers with the guys, Dougie Hamilton goes to museums. Mm-hmm. Dougie Hamilton's interested in art and history and culture. And that seems to be a bad thing. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. And, and like that boggles my mind that you wouldn't want more of that. So now he's, you know, shipped off to the land of the, you know, the weirdos, so to speak, in Carolina, where they have those post-game celebrations and everything else. Yeah. Because, you know, Boston didn't want him. Calgary didn't want him. They're shipping out this, you know, guy who arguably, if, you know, the next Olympics will be on Team Canada. For sure. A top six defenseman from the top nation in the world. And two teams don't want you because you don't talk about partying and, and girls. You talk about, you like reading and... So, but here's the thing. The reality is they all have more interest than what they show. When yeah. you played hockey, did you talk about your interest in writing? No, absolutely English? not. No. no, of course not. No. So now when I go into rooms after I've humanized the issue and I've really been vulnerable and I, I've humanized just one of the many issues, I get them to share. Yeah. And this is the next step where they have to break the conformity. So, now I have them share. Tell me something you enjoy doing that you wouldn't typically tell a teammate because it's the same analogy used earlier with football that, you know, the analogy in hockey is always that we're a family or we're brothers and we're going to go and they use like battle or war or something like that. We're going to go to battle together because mm-hmm. we're a family. Well, if you're a family, why can't you tell each other everything? Why are you so judged for being different than what this, you know, culture tells you you should be so um i had one ohl team where a player tough guy stood up and said i like writing poetry right then another kid stood up and said well if i don't make the nhl i want to be uh, a zoologist and then a first year player literally jumped out of his seat and goes really i love animal documentaries 
Can you imagine that they didn't know these things? They spend every day together, six days a week, arguably at least four or five hours a day, mm-hmm. minimum. And they don't know anything about one another, except for girls, partying, sports. Yeah. So, so now they're bonding on a deeper level. They're going to feel, and the other thing too is when you can be more of yourself, you're going to be happier. And, and a happier person is a more productive person. So we went right. to the room. Even the coach said, I love Broadway musicals. <laughs> That's great. Right? So, yeah. so now they're bonding on a deeper level. And now maybe some kid can come into the room and say, I'm Muslim. I'm of the Muslim faith. Yeah. Maybe he won't be judged. Or maybe another kid can come in and say, I'm gay or I'm bisexual. And eventually, when we realize, I have a saying, normal doesn't exist. It's a fallacy. We're all a bunch of weirdos. Yeah. And when we realize we're all different, we're all weirdos, maybe at that point we won't judge people for their differences. Maybe at that point people can come in the room and read or write or enjoy what they enjoy and, and not be judged for it and still go out and play hockey. Mm-hmm. But this, this misconception in hockey that you can only like hockey and only be about hockey. Yeah. Well, I, I, I mean, there's a lot of successful people in the world who have hobbies. <laughs> yeah, of course. The mo- like, like, you can be uh, the best lawyer in the world, and on the weekend, you're not sitting at home talking about law with your wife and kids, you're, you know, or your husband and kids. Like, you're talking mm-hmm. about other things. And, and the, you know, like, all the owners of the teams have other hobbies. Hockey is their hobby. It's not their first career owning a hockey team. Yeah. So, you know, it, it's, it's just ridiculous to me that we, we tunnel vision people so much in the sport and they're forced to conform. So that's the second thing I'd like to see them do. Yeah. And once they do that and you start doing more education and sharing, because I, I think they would, players would be receptive once they learn. And then we, we encourage them to be more authentically themselves and, and, and share their, you know, um, if they, do you have social things like this that they, you know, believe in? Like, I know so many players in the league who have LGBT relatives and never speak up mm-hmm. because they're afraid to be called gay. Dan Carcillo told me the other day when he was in rehab, his best friend, somebody he met there is a gay guy. He became best friends with him and he went back to his team and they said to him, like, what are you doing hanging out with this guy? Oh, my God. In the NHL. And he's sitting there like, so now he's perceived to be gay because he has a gay friend. Sean Avery. You look yeah. at Sean Avery. Sean Avery was doing the same stuff in in um, Detroit. Same antics, same buffoonery as he did in New York. Sean Avery wasn't ridiculed until he got to New York. And, and it was after he um, started hanging out with Andy Cohen. People mm-hmm. thought he was gay. He did an internship at Vogue too, right? And that that yeah. happened at the same time. People thought he was gay. Yeah. And that's when all of his antics became vilified because now you're different. Hmm. That's and and it's, you, the examples can keep going. PK Subban. Yep. You know, um, and pushed out of Montreal. You, you can look at uh, you know look at your the sense right duclair and how he was treated in uh columbus yeah you know and and it's there's biases there and it's not it's not okay 
and and until they're willing to really first and foremost humanize it encourage people to express their individuality and then from there educate them on all of these things it'll never change and it's it's deep and it's a lot of work but you can't just throw out a hockey's for everyone or or a pride night or anything else and think that's okay if anything i think it sends the wrong message because it's uh, i was quoted in mclean's as saying it's it's having the parade before winning the cup brock this has been unbelievable like i i don't even know what to say uh, i don't want to keep you too much longer but you know i remember when i was young and when you were training my brother, and I remember when my brother told me you were gay, and, you know, everyone in my family is, they're unbelievable people. None of us had any sort of, you know, issues or, or reservations about it, but I, I couldn't help but be struck by the way that my younger brother, who at that time, you know, was, I think, early into his teens, he was pretty young, and just so nonchalantly was like, yeah, he's gay, Um and it wasn't even by anything you did. It was just by you being you and you being there and by these kids having a relationship with you. So if it's so easy for these young kids, if all you had to do was change the minds of these young kids was just stand there and be yourself, why is this shift not happening any faster? Why are we still going as a snail at a snail's pace within hockey culture? If it's that easy to change the mind of these young kids in this Northern Ontario town who, you know, like you said, can be closed minded because it doesn't have that same level of diversity. You know what I mean? Like I love Sudbury, you know, like that's, that's my home, but that's the reality of the situation. So if you can do that there, why are we still moving at this slow grinding pace within the world of hockey? Well, um, part of it is I'm really, you know, I think two players have come out and one was an ex-player in Finland and then there's a player in Denmark. So uh, professional players, there's three total um, who have come out. I think I gain credibility because of my, I have street cred almost, right? Yeah. In the sport. So, um, and because hockey's so insular, it takes somebody who's been in it to get in the door. If I hate to say this, but it's reality if, if you know, a, a stereotypical gay effeminate man came in and talked to them about this stuff, a lot of them might tune it out mm -hmm. because it's, it's everything they said. But when I come in as a bro it, and, and I can share, not only do they know, okay, he played here, he did this, but also I humanize it in the sense that like, they ask me questions and we talk and we engage about, you know, things I go through and things that have happened. And, and I'm as open with the players as I am in this conversation right now, it humanizes it for them. The issue is those who don't know me or have made the choice to like work with me training, like it's hard for me to get in the doors, yeah. even though I've played, like it's been, you know, I worked a bit with the OHL. I pleaded to make my program a mandatory program. There's still about five teams in the league who haven't, you know, um, had me in to talk to their teams in the two and a half years I was doing it. Um, there's still teams like the NHL hasn't 
fully embraced letting me in the doors. Um, minor hockey still hasn't fully embraced letting me in. And, and there's one of me and a lot of teams, but it's, you know, those generations, those older generations that need to step forward and humanize it and uh, or let someone in like myself who can humanize it. Let someone in of color who has gone through stuff to humanize it for these players so they realize the importance of their words. And if they did, it would change. Like, I know this is reality because I've done it in many places, including OHL teams where kids come to me that I've never met before, add me to Instagram and say, like, you made me shift my views. You made me shift not only my views, but made me recognize the importance of my words and the impact yeah. I can have. So it's just a matter of, you know, like, and it becomes frustrating for me because it's like I'm begging to get indoors mm -hmm. that people won't necessarily let me in or feel comfortable letting anyone in. And then on top of that, you know, as much as hockey is a priority and dealing with bigger things and trying to shift mainstream cultures and be support to LGBTQ plus people across the world. So there's like so many different you know, things pulling at it, but it, it, it's as simple as that. If they would let me in, I would go across all the leagues and I would spend like, I think last year I spent 46 straight weeks on the road. Wow. I, and, and at the time I was living in Sudbury. Yeah. So the travel from Sudbury to travel everywhere I went was you know, brutal. Yeah. And, but I did it and I'm okay doing it and I will do it. And, and it's part of the reason why I moved to Toronto. I mean, my partner's here, so that too, but, um, you know, it was okay. This makes more sense for what I'm doing. Um, and I don't care. I've, I've told them I'll, I'll live in hotels. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm a resource begging to be used, use me. And if they don't, I'm just going to keep, vocalizing things and showing examples on line through work I do through some things I'm starting up as a means of hopefully um, because of sport, the other thing about sport, it's very re reactionary. Mm -hmm. They put things in place after bad things happen. Yeah. So maybe that's going to be what it takes, but hopefully they eventually get it. Man, you need to keep banging on the door because it, it's too important. And I don't know, like I'm just one guy with a podcast that like 20 people listen to. But, you know, anything, anything I can do to help, you know, further that cause, I, I can promise you that I'm going to do, especially after today, because this conversation has been incredibly eye opening. Uh, I have a couple of listeners. I would like to ask you some questions, if that's all right. Yeah, for sure. Um, so Ross uh, says, to me, the biggest issue is less the bigoted minority, but more the majority who insist on emphasizing things aren't that bad, praising K. Andre Miller for reacting the right way, obviously referring to when he did the live stream for the Rangers and someone was throwing racial slurs at him, uh, repeating that hockey players are some of the best guys on the planet. One, what's an effective response to the enablers who insist the problem isn't a big deal? And two, do you feel optimism that the exclusive culture will change? Hey. Here's the thing with it is um, they're saying it's not a big deal and it's twofold. Number one, when leagues have things like Hockey's for Everyone or You Can Play Nights or Pride Nights, 
it makes it seem like everything's great and it's a celebration. Yeah. See, look, nothing's wrong. We had a pride night. Mm. And it's like, we're fine. Look, look, we're inclusive. We had a pride night. You know, or we yeah. celebrate Black History Month. It's like, you know, uh, Brandon Press saying that he watched uh, a black movie six times, therefore. Oh, my God. Yeah. It was one of his arguments. And it's like, well, no, that's not okay. That's not enough. That's, that is ticking a box. It's like Hockey Canada having um, online educational stuff that nobody really watches, but just answers questions at the end and mutes it. Yeah. You know, it's like that, that's not impactful. So, if, um, so that's one aspect of it. And the other one is it's very uncomfortable for people to admit that these things exist because then they might have to admit that they need to evolve. And that's where I think players have a lot of issue with Carcillo mm. is because Dan freely admits, yeah, this exists and yeah, I was a part of it. I played against Dan, and so did my brother in the O. Dan's no choir boy. He never was. Like, he was no. one of the worst. You know? By his own admission. Oh, yeah. yeah. He's he's incredibly open, and that's why Dan and I can have a friendship. Because, you know, I, we, we all do things in life that are bad or wrong. Mm -hmm. How do we evolve? Yes. How do we become better people? And then what do we do? It's one thing to say sorry and do nothing, but when you say sorry and then you start advocating for shifts, and, and, and use your platform and your voice to create those shifts, that's when good things happen. Right. So um, that would be what it takes. And I don't think we're anywhere near that yet because players that are currently playing fear that if they speak out on anything, they will have, you know, like I said, I was blackballed as in, you know, training and whatnot. They'll be blackballed in the sport. Right. Uh, one more here. And, oh, sorry, go ahead. And even in, in sport in general, we look Kaepernick. Yeah. Can get another job. That's a great point. Uh, so this one says, I'd love to hear what strategies uh, Brock finds useful for actually changing individual minds in terms of some of the more toxic attitudes that exist around the sport. What's worked for him in the past? Um, we kind of touched on that, but um, if you just want to give like maybe some brief examples, then fire away. Humanizing. If I humanize it for people, um, it's uh, great. And, uh, the other thing is engaging and educating people. Right. It's one thing, you know, when people say things that are, you know, ignorant or, you know, um, not okay online or in person, we attack them. There, there's a huge, and um, I, I don't want to generalize all, but there's a huge push within like the social justice warrior type space to come forcefully, like come hard at those people. Mm -hmm. and I don't, I believe in engaging with them. I don't believe in being polite and staying back. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think engaging and educating them is, is very different. And it's through humanizing the issue and whatnot, because if I come with the same energy, like if I would have went at press the same way he came at me, nothing would have been changed. Nothing would have, you know, for sure from his thought process, from anything by the end of that conversation, my last tweet on how hockey culture works, he agreed. Yeah. Uh, by the, like three hours later. Mm -hmm. He goes, yeah, I experienced that. I said, then why are you defending it? Do you know what I mean? And yeah. he stopped. He stopped completely. Mm -hmm. He stopped tweeting. Um, so my whole thing is 
you have to engage with people if you're going to come at them and come at them with the same type of energy or force that they are coming at you with nothing will get resolved nothing will shift you're never going to have them see it and and some people say well that's i shouldn't have to you're right and you don't have to but then don't say anything yeah if you're just going to attack them you're going to make it worse and 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 i would rather you know see nothing said than than you know pushing them further further away from evolving personally everyone mm-hmm. you know has their own opinions on that brock if someone's listening to this right now and they're maybe struggling with their sexuality with their identity with anything whether it's related to sports or just life in general what do you say to them it's okay you're going to struggle and it's all right to struggle we all struggle you know, it's just shit we deal with. We all have shit. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's people out there, whether they're in your family or not, whether you're afraid to tell them or not, there's people like myself that you can reach out to who answer, who will talk to you on a daily basis. And I'm always accessible through DM on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, whatever. And and I will talk to you. Um and if you are coming out and you're afraid of what, you know, your family might think or they weren't incredibly supportive day one, just recognize, too, that you gave yourself X amount of years to accept yourself. And that sometimes it takes people a little more time, but that's okay because you gave yourself that time. So give them that time. Brock McGillis, this has been an absolutely incredible conversation. Thank you so much for doing this. Um, you know, it's a hockey podcast, but I think this is something that people can benefit from just, you know, life in general from listening, from listening to you. And as far as the NHL and these structures in pro sports go, they need to let you in, man, because you are, you're a very intelligent person. You're a very well-spoken person and you have, I think your methods of reaching people are exactly what we need to change things and to, you know, make a positive difference for the generations that are going to, that are going to come after us. Um, like I said, I don't want to keep you any longer. So, um, where can people find you on social media? Um, and what kind of projects do you have going on that people should look forward to or check out? Yeah, so um, you can find me on social media on Twitter at Brock underscore McGillis on Instagram at Brock McGillis 33 or Facebook Brock McGillis Um, uh, projects. I'm actually starting tomorrow to film uh, season two of my uh, web series in the U.S. called This is Shit. It's um, with World of Wonder who does million dollar listing and RuPaul's Drag Race and a show with uh RuPaul's Drag Race Queen Scotia Davis who's gone through some stuff in her life or his life and and we um essentially the premise is we all deal with shit and you know typically when we're struggling we think we're the only ones in the world who have shit uh but we all do and we share our experiences and we bring guests on who share theirs and and just so people feel a little less alone and they realize that you know it's not the end of the world and we can get through it um on top of that just uh once this pandemic is over hopefully i'll get back on the road and speaking and 
And also, um, I'm working on a project with uh, Rogers and Sportsnet right now um, for uh, LGBTQ plus um, sports podcast. So, I'm I'm really looking forward to that, and I'm I'm sure much can be the same. Much the same can be said for everyone who's listening to this. Brock, thank you again. Um, like I said, uh, your cause is something I really believe in. So anytime you want to come back on, um, anytime you feel like, you know, I don't know how much of a platform I can provide, but mine is available to you anytime you want. Just say the word. Thanks, Brandon. And anytime you want me on, please feel free to reach out. I will be sure to take you up on that. Folks, thank you for listening. Make sure you check Brock out on social media and check out the laundry list of projects he's got going on right now. Um, If this wasn't enough to convince you that he's a guy worth listening to, I'm sure that will be. Folks, make sure you like the podcast, share the podcast, subscribe to the podcast, rate five stars, and, you know, like Brock said, let's all be a positive, let's be part of the positive change within hockey and within society in general. And make sure you still stay home. We're not quite out of the woods yet, but we're getting there. So stay home, stay healthy, stay safe, and we'll see you next week. Take care, everyone.